Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes. Welcome to episode 92 of the Headspace and Timing podcast. Today, I'm talking with Dr. Michael Brennan, Army combat veteran, clinical mental health professional, and clinical director of the Road Home Program at Rush University, part of the Wounded Warrior Project Warrior Care Network. Not every veteran is going to need mental health care. Not every veteran is going to need individual care. Not everybody is going to need, you know, an IOP. And in some sense, I see the Warrior Care Network as the Air Force, Marines, Navy, and the Army, right? Same mission, different capabilities and different strengths, right? And depending upon what the mission is, depending upon what the veteran needs, we can navigate what program might be best. Welcome to the Headspace and Timing Podcast, a show dedicated to breaking down the stereotypes around veteran mental health. My name is Dwayne France, and I'm a retired Army non-commissioned officer and a combat veteran of both Iraq and Afghanistan. After retiring from the Army, I took on a new mission as a clinical mental health counselor for my fellow service members. If you served in any branch of the military, then you're familiar with the M2 machine gun, the 50 cal. It's one of the most effective weapons in the military's arsenal. If the weapon's headspace and timing wasn't set correctly, however, it was just a useless chunk of metal. Veterans can be rendered inoperable if their headspace and timing's not set correctly either. That's my goal with this show, to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health and reduce the stigma against seeking support. Each week, we'll talk with mental health professionals, veterans, and those who support service members, veterans, and their families. We're going to have real and honest conversations about a topic that most just don't like to talk about, veteran mental health. Let's jump into this week's conversation. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Headspace and Timing Podcast once again. And as always, we really appreciate you taking the time to listen and learn more about veteran mental health. Uh, you know that we have a lot of guests on the show who are both veterans uh, who served in the military and also um, maybe like myself who become mental health professionals after the service or served as mental health professionals during the service. And and that's uh, that's who my guest is today, Mike Brennan from the uh, Rush University Road Home Program. Uh, Rush University Road Home Program is part of the uh, Wounded Warrior Project's Warrior Care Network. Um, also, uh, as part of the Warrior Care Network, part of the Warrior Wellness Alliance through the Bush Institute. And so I'm really pleased to have been able to connect with Mike to, to share more about what Road Home Program has done and is doing for veterans. So, Mike, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, Dwayne. It's an honor to be invited to be able to speak uh, about what we're doing and about veteran mental health care. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely something that uh, I think all of us, uh, especially you and I and, and those in the profession, are passionate about. And and and, and as I mentioned before we got started, uh, I really do have a lot of respect for what uh, Road Home has been doing. I've been following it 
um, as sort of in the career field for a while. But before we get into um, the Road Home program, I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and your background. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, so a little bit about me. Uh, so went to graduate school to get my, my PsyD in Chicago at Adler University. And during that time, uh, found out about the Health Profession Scholarship Program. I've um, always had my eyes set on the military and a medical uh, MOS. And it was just kind of perfect timing on how that lined up. And so joined and signed my contract in January of 2009. That put me into the reserves while I was going to school. And of course, you get some credit while you're going to school. Uh, so you don't have to actively drill. Did a couple of drills, some ADTs, and then went on active duty Army in June of 2011 and was stationed at Fort Sam Houston for about just under three years. And then was stationed at Fort Hood as the first psychologist embedded within the 3rd Cavalry Regiment. Um, ended up deploying with them from June of 2014 to um, it was the end of February 2015. Then you know, so I saw what mental health looked like and did a lot of screening and treatment, education, command consultation, you name it, uh, before deployment, after, uh, during deployment, and after deployment. And then my active duty time ended in April of 2016, in which I transitioned to the Army Reserve, and I mainly served in the capacity of a OCT, an observer controller trainer, where I would evaluate combat stress units, as well as uh, medical assets within the Army Reserves, on um, behavioral health, command objectives, et cetera, and did some teaching as well. Um, and then wanted to see how many hats that I could wear under one branch of service. So then I transitioned. There was an opportunity to do uh, more of a clinical focus in the Wisconsin National Guard, and so recently transitioned to the Wisconsin National Guard, where I am attached to a medical detachment and basically help uh, one of the other behavioral health officers oversee mental health counseling and screening for the Wisconsin National Guard. So roughly about 10 years of service um, continues to be an absolute honor to, to serve our veterans and active service members. And so it's really been a, a dream come true. It's the best decision that I've ever made in my life to uh, put on the uniform, and we'll try to be involved in veteran mental health care, not only in the civilian sector, but hopefully in the National Guard and Reserve for the remainder of my career. So, and, and you said that even before that, you had looked at um, uh, going in the military, you'd had your eyes set on the military. Do you have a military family background? I have some, you know, not, not directly in my immediate family. Um, a lot of the friends I grew up with join the military, uh, have some, my, my uncles and grandparents were in the military. And so there was definitely some awareness of, of what service looked like. And so September 11 happened when I was in high school. And so kind of growing up and learning and, you know, having the Iraq and Afghanistan wars in the peripheral while I was going to school, um, you know, having that sense of wanting to serve something greater than myself and be involved in a capacity um, that I felt like I could bring something to the table. And so that you know, made me raise my right arm and, and want to contribute to the mission and, and have an impact on, you know, those who were serving. 
so that's what propelled me to join the army. And, and, and again, it was it was the the best decision that I ever made. So, and that's uh, that's the back story on the military. But uh, why choose behavioral health? I mean, you you sort of merge those two. Um, and you served on active duty and continue to serve as a uh, clinical psychologist. Um, what brought you into the mental health field? Uh, great question. So uh, I actually grew up with two parents that were in the mental health field. My dad was a psychologist and my mom was a social worker. And so and I couldn't, couldn't, uh, couldn't go down uh, the business path. I tried that and, you know, really saw what impact you know, mental health providers can have on really changing people's lives. And so kind of that, growing up with that, seeing what was involved in, in the world as well as our country uh, with two wars going on at the same time, combined the interest as well as some of the background that I had growing up and and really was, it was really the perfect blend of what my interests were as, as well as what my experience was because I ended up uh, – studying psychology and social work in graduate school and then chose a, a clinical, clinically focused doctorate program. And there was a perfect opportunity to be able to use those skills directly with, within the Army. And I think you came into uh, the Army at a time where things perhaps started to shift. Um, uh, you'd mentioned uh, that you were in RC East. I was uh, a station in RC East for my first Afghanistan deployment um, uh, several years earlier, 2009 to 2010. Uh, we had actually had, uh, so that at that point was 4th Infantry Division. Our brigade had an embedded psychologist, uh, Captain Katie Kopp, who, who actually has also been a, a guest on the show here. Um, and, and we talked about, you know, the, the differences in, in how things shifted when you came in 2011 and 12, um, mental health in the military had started to shift a little bit from my point of view, but you also served with a pretty storied regiment, right? You know, the, the third ACR when they were here at, at, uh, Fort Carson, third ACR, um, it had some pretty, um, just say kinetic background. It's a unit that has seen yeah. a lot of action. Um, what was that like for you coming in to such a storied unit and trying to change the way that maybe the mental health culture was going on? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I was, I, I fell in on a system that was, uh, was somewhat set and then used that momentum to really propel a successful behavioral health mission. One of the, uh, one of the mentors at the time that I, that I had uh, was major Chris Payne. He had, he was a social worker um, that I believe was the first embedded behavioral health officer. You know, so from my knowledge as, as, you know, behavioral health began to shift philosophically from taking assets that were attached to some of the military treatment facilities and, and medical hospitals and taking those assets and making them part of the actual line units and pushing them as far forward as possible. It was a pendulum shift. And so I hit that right, you know, kind of towards the beginning of that. And now that's, that's pretty commonplace to have a behavioral health officer for my, for my knowledge embedded within that chain of command. And really, I, some of the main reasons of why that is, is because, you know, to have a soldier who's struggling that might not know who they're going to see, 
and, and command as well. Uh, sometimes that would decrease a barrier to receiving care if you have somebody that you know and a point of contact who at least, you know, maybe somebody that a soldier knows of to help facilitate that relationship. And so really a big part of my job while, while doing that was doing battlefield circulation. And I think that's what really sets aside other mental health professionals that might be attached to a hospital or, or a civilian psychologist that, or a mental health provider that might be, uh, you know, outside of post or, you know, within the community, you have somebody that's right there within your chain of command. And so a big part of my job, like I mentioned, was battlefield circulation. It was trying to get up and speak in front of as many people as I could on a related topic. It was touching base with you know, some of the first line leaders, the company commanders, the first sergeants, the platoon sergeant, platoon leaders, as well as just soldiers in general, go to where the soldiers were hanging out. Hey, this is this is my name. This is what I do. And you don't necessarily have to, to have a clinical relationship, but just somewhat of a relationship. Start off with small talk. Hey, my name's Mike Brennan. I'm the behavioral health officer for the unit. Create some small talk. Hey, this is what I do. Know anybody struggling? You know, send them my way. And, you know, uh, pre-deployment, during deployment, you know, I, when we essentially got on to our deployment and, and, and hit the ground, it was, you know, doing essentially the same thing that I was doing in Garrison, was you know, circulating around as much as possible, going to where soldiers hung out. I was not in my office that much at, at the beginning because I was really trying to establish a presence. And making those connections, having those leaders begin to trust you, get to know you, then they can feel comfortable enough if, you know, their soldiers felt comfortable enough talking to them, then they make that referral and warm handoff. And so a big philosophy that I had was, you know, really trying to create some pertinent topics of you know, what, what people were currently facing, you know, combat stress, sleep problems, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to do with mental health, but performance enhancement uh, while while deployed. Did a couple of sequences on, you know, how to max your boards, how to, uh, um, you know, what, what was good communication, what was not so great communication to a significant other. And what did that look like while you were on deployment? And, you know, the more people that I talked to, you know, whether they, you know, I, I was able to specifically speak with them or not they still might be able to recognize my face so that if they did have some difficulty, there would be at least somewhat of familiarity. And so I, I really talked to, you know, connected with all of the providers at aid stations uh, because most of the time people would come into the aid station, maybe talk to the medics or the PA, right. Hey, or the chaplain, you know, I have a physical, I have a physical power of the chaplain, right? The chaplain was a main go-to. We worked hand in hand. Uh, so I would refer to them. They would refer to me. We'd go out together, went on a couple of missions uh, that, you know, my intention was essentially just not to not to get into a firefight by any means. It was just presence. Hey, who's who's that captain over there? Well, hey, that's the behavioral health officer. So if they could at least recognize me, then that relationship and familiarity is there to increase the potential that if they were struggling, that they'd come and see me. Because my philosophy was if I was sitting in my office, that's the wrong answer. Um, you know, of course, if I was treating somebody, I, I could use an office, but I would do walkabouts with people, have conversations in, in a bunker or on, you know, the back of a Humvee or, you know, 
walking around the the base or waiting for you know the the black ox to come and transport me to a, a, another location it, you know the the entire battle space was my office no, it's a, it's very similar to, and like I said, my, and I call her my, my doc, uh, Katie Cop. Uh, we'd pull into some, um, in a combat outpost with a, a string of vehicles and then she'd be there. And I'm like, how'd you get here? Right. I mean, and that's, and, and she said the same thing. It's very important to get out and, and move, um, and, and even treat as far forward. You know, this is something that, um, you know, we definitely know, um, physically, um, that treat as far forward as the battlefield, but that's critical for mental health as well is, um, you know, uh, keep the, the service member with their unit, um, as much as you can and, and get them back in the fight. Cause that's where they want to be anyway. Uh, but also to, to make sure that, uh, uh, that both the unit is safe and the, the service members taken care of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, is trying to keep them within their support network. Because if you take a look at it, you know, somebody's struggling and then, you know, maybe they have some depressive symptoms, might be struggling from post-traumatic stress, and you remove them from a cohesive unit that, you know, all their friends are there and that's how they essentially cope with some of the stress that's going on, right? A big proponent on pain shared is, is pain divided. And that social connection is one of the largest protective factors against any mental health related condition. And so if you remove them from one of the important structures, that's probably helping them function and deal with some of the stress at hand, then you'd really be doing a disservice if you pluck them away and sent them home or sent them to a, you know, a different unit with a, a, a different mission. Uh, so the philosophy is you know, immediacy, proximity, and then remedy as well. So in, in definitely, uh, I want to hold on to that idea and come back to that idea because your story doesn't end with the uh, Wisconsin National Guard. Um, and, and really, we were connected because of your work um, with the, um, the Road Ho program with Rush University. So, but then that idea of we treat veterans or we treat service members um, as far forward as possible, immediacy of brevity. But we don't seem to do the same thing for veterans. We usually send them, and, and I'm here in Colorado, and we send, we've got an inpatient unit in um, in in uh, Montana or in Nebraska. We, we don't treat veterans within their community. And I get the sense that's something that's a little different with Rush. Yeah, you know, that's a, uh, a great statement and one that we're definitely aware of and trying to actively get involved in, in many different ways. And I think one thing that Wounded Warrior Project does a phenomenal job at, and we're so lucky to have that collaboration and partnership with them because they help augment our ability to do what we do. Um, so more about that, right? So we have, uh, you know, going to where veterans are, we have a whole outreach component of Road Home. But let me give you a little background first before I get into that. So, you know, Road Home Program started uh, with some seed money from Wounded Warrior Project to develop an outpatient clinic to be able to help augment the VA's mission, right? So it was an academic medical center, essentially separate from the VA to help, you know, essentially try to increase frequency, intensity, uh, and, and quality of care. And so through that, 
not only did we create an outpatient program, but we developed an intensive outpatient program that is three weeks long, provides comprehensive quality care uh, that really is designed to treat the entire person, the, you know, the, the, the physical, the emotional, the spiritual, and the mental aspects that make up who somebody is. And so one of the ways that we try to increase access to care, which Wounded Warrior Project really allows us and helps us to do, is provide travel from wherever the veteran is. You know, let's say they're, for example, in, in you know, rural Montana, we help, one, be able to take that person and pay for their travel to get to us and then pay for their lodging, their food, their treatment, and some incidentals in between that. And the, and the idea behind doing that is, you know, sometimes quality care and access to care is a really big issue, especially for a lot of rural veterans and even ones that are, uh, you know, within metropolitan areas. And so trying to decrease that barrier by, you know, providing free of cost care and taking people from where they are to us and then facilitating some of that camaraderie with uh, you know, the cohort model that we have it echoes what happens in the military, right? So essentially these cohorts don't necessarily know each other at the beginning, but they begin to bond together almost like a, a cohesive unit going through a very intensive experience, attacking some of you know the emotional difficulties that they have and discussing some of the most distressing experiences that they've ever had. And so then that social connection and that therapeutic atmosphere and environment really provides the trust to be able to do deep trauma work that that really we've we've seen uh, help improve the lives of of many of the veterans that that come to our program. One of the things I, I put a little, I put a pin on our outreach team. So one of the, one of the great things about our program is that we are able to, we have a, a veteran outreach team. So we have multiple different services represented and they're so committed and dedicated to really wanting to try to identify veterans within the community. And, you know, not only are they focused regionally or, or locally within the Chicago area, but they'll travel even out far, you know, outside of that to be able to try to identify veterans out in their community to create that relationship, brief what Road Home does, and then try to facilitate that warm handoff for clinical care. And so our outreach team is truly phenomenal and has just amazing passion for wanting to improve the lives of the people who have have sacrificed so much and that have served our country. See, and that's a, I, I am a, a very big proponent of um, specialized care, I, I guess I can say, um, for military service members. So, you know, having having served um, and, and even more so working with veterans, I mean, it is by by any definition, it's a different culture. And we talk a lot about cultural competence, but this is one thing that I've always heard um, about uh, the Road Home program. Uh, is that uh, it's focused on understanding um, the unique mental health needs of the veteran, not just, as you said, not just the mental health needs, but the entire holistic, right? You talked earlier about, uh, you know, sleeping issues, or or, or I imagine there's chronic pain, and of course there's addiction and all of those things. Um, But the Road Home specifically focuses on 
veterans and their families, right? Yeah, absolutely. So recognizing that not only the veteran is impacted by their service, but the, the family as well, right? And we can treat the veteran uh, as much as we can, but sometimes if we don't address what the system they're coming from or going back into, then sometimes we're missing the boat. And so part of what we encourage is veterans that come to our program to bring a family member with, and you know, locally we're able to, to do family therapy, couples work, et cetera, uh, because they've, they've gone through that experience as well and also sacrificed just as much because having a deployed parent in harm's way has its ripple effect that, that also impact the spouse, the children, et cetera. And so having that unique family unit together to be able to, to work through what some of the challenges and barriers that they see uh, can really help set the family up for success. Within the intensive outpatient program that I had, had briefly described, right, so we have a three-week program. It's trauma-focused, so the primary diagnosis that we treat the veteran uh, with is, is post-traumatic stress disorder, and there's a whole host of other comorbidities, uh, you know, that, that accompany PTSD. It's not just PTSD. Oftentimes, there's a, a variety of different physical ailments that come along with that uh, traumatic brain injury, substance use, depression, uh, suicidality, et cetera. And we'll treat the, the, the veteran is the identified patient. Uh, and then the three-week model that we have, the first two weeks is veteran-focused. The third week, we invite a family member to come or multiple family members to come now. We've increased our capacity to, to, to accommodate more family members recently. And part of what we do is have a whole cohort of family members in which we provide a lot of education about what is PTSD, take them through uh, some activities themselves of, you know, mindfulness, moral injury. Uh, we try to create opportunity for them to bond together, to give suggestions about, you know, their struggles and what they've done to overcome some of those. And that that model has really allowed the family members to bond well together. And we have some programming, more limited, where all of the family members and veterans are together. Um, and that model has really worked very well. See, and I, I think um, that's very important. There's a study uh, that came out, and I say now at the beginning of last year, is, is now we're in 2019 by the National Academies of Sciences. When they looked at um, 4,000 post-9-11 veterans, um, but they found that supportive family members led to great. Number one, it led to more usage of of uh, of therapy um, or, or more uh, connection to clinicians, but also better outcomes. That if if uh, if I, you know, if my wife and and my my sisters and my brother, um, who's also happens to be a veteran, we support each other. Um, in yes, go seek treatment, then it's more likely that I'm going to have effective treatment. Whereas if I don't have a supportive network, a, a close supportive network, not necessarily the Wounded Warrior Project network, but even a family network, um, then it's less likely that I'm going to have good outcomes or even continue with treatment. Uh, and so it's encouraging to hear that that's what the Road Home Program recognizes that and includes that in the treatment. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's really it's been amazing how our programs develop. Uh, you know, what I think one of the major strengths of our program is that we 
take feedback from the veterans uh, and incorporate that into making our program better. That allows us to evolve with our patient population and, and provide a customer service type of experience. And so when we started out, Back in January of 2016, our intensive outpatient program, uh, it looked different than it does now. And, and a big reason for that is we incorporate that feedback, are open to it, and welcome it, knowing that, you know, you know we have a, a, a great program, but every program can improve, no matter what it is, right? There's no such thing, I think, as a, essentially a cookie-cutter gold standard program. Um, there's going to be some strengths and weaknesses of, of of what any program offers, and part of what we welcome is, hey, are we meeting the mark? And so when we first started out, a big gap area that we were hearing from the veterans that we were serving was, hey, you know, what about what about our family members? Uh, is there anything that you can do for them? And we would welcome the family member to a company, but we didn't have any specific programming that could accommodate them. They could you know, maybe show up for one, one hour a day every once in a while. But we really made a calculated effort to try to incorporate more family-centered programs as we began to get some of that feedback. And, it, of course, informed by some of the, the most recent research that, you know, combining those together, we were able to really craft a, a program that, that was able to meet the demand of what we were hearing from our customers, the best thing. No, and I, I think that's a, a hallmark of any uh, great program because if we're still treating PTSD like we did in the, the 1980s, then we're definitely um, missing the mark. Uh, and, and not, you know, saying that that's where yeah. um, you were doing it, but but also, you know, just definitely continuing and, and, and try to evolve. Now, is, is it only post 9-11 veterans um, that are... Um, that that have the ability to go through the intensive outpatient program, or is it open to to all service or all eras of service? Uh, so it is, and you know because Cosmic Warrior Project is one of our major funders and really allows us to do what we do. And of course, there's other funders that that also allow us to to function within that space that uh, allow us to expand our services outside of just post nine eleven. I mean. Wounded Warrior Project, their main demographic is post-9-11 veterans. And so a majority of the people that come through our program are post-9-11 Iraq and Afghanistan uh, uh, era veterans. But we do, we don't exclude pre-9-11 as well. So we've, we, we see folks from you know, Desert Storm. We've had some Vietnam veterans and some of the conflicts in between that. And Really, what we've seen is even regardless of era of service, it's a shared experience. You know, uh, war, uh, you could be in a different context or in a different environment. Uh, you know, of course, sometimes the, the type of equipment, the type of weapons and the, the way that, that war is fought is different. But trauma is trauma and sometimes war is war. And that unique shared experience will bond any together regardless of what era that they've served in. No, and I, I, I recognize that too. And I think one of the things that, um, uh, that, that people often miss when it comes to veteran mental health, even for, or especially for post 9-11 veterans is they don't realize um, how vastly different um, their war experiences can be. Um, you know, I served for 15 months in Baghdad, which is, you know, urban combat. Um, 
it, compared to the the year that I spent in RC East, which is not urban uh, decidedly at all, you know. And so just you know, even within one individual's um, you know uh, a military career, they can have different combat experiences. But as you said, uh, trauma's trauma. And, and somebody that experienced um, you know uh, Mogadishu in the mid '90s um, can relate to somebody who you know, hung off the side of a cliff in Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, you, you hit a, uh, or you mentioned a, a uh, I think a really great point. It really kind of depended upon, you know, you know, essentially where, where you were, what time you were there, what was going on at that particular time, you know, what, what, what unit you were with. And really, in some sense, it was kind of luck of the draw of where you were stationed, and uh, you know what what the mission was. I mean, some some infantry units, you know, were deployed to, to you know different areas of Afghanistan, and it, and it wasn't as kinetic as being in others. Um, so I think what we've what we've found is, you know, really trying to craft our assessment process to make sure that we have some shared experience, so that it wasn't uh, vastly different to where that might decrease the cohesion of the group. So we are calculated about, you know, who we put within a group to try to facilitate an increased group cohesion to maximize clinical effectiveness. No, that's, um, that's, that's very interesting. I, I hadn't considered that. I mean, obviously, you know, say it, it, trauma can happen anywhere. Um, the 82nd Airborne Division, uh, I think a brigade or, or probably more, and especially uh, reservists and, and guardsmen uh, were deployed to Hurricane Katrina, where, you know, natural disasters we know are, are one of the um, uh, uh, the main reasons why individuals can develop post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, it, but someone who experienced the trauma of Hurricane Katrina um, may not have the same uh, frame of reference as someone that experienced trauma in you know, uh, again, Baghdad or or uh, Kandahar or something like that. And so it's it's very interesting. The idea of I don't get the sense that you exclude them; you just put them in different cohorts. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, actually, uh, glad you mentioned that too. Um, one of the distinctions and uh, that we noticed as we started doing this was, you know, a significant difference between combat trauma and military sexual trauma. So, in a given year, we have you know, eight combat cohorts and four military sexual trauma-focused cohorts. And that distinction and, and that, uh, you know, differentiating between those types of traumas um, really helped increase that, that group cohesion and shared experience uh, because there are some, you know, differences between those different types of traumas um, that we do try to focus on and being mindful of uh, really wanting to facilitate that group cohesion to again maximize that clinical effectiveness, and if we if we grouped people that experienced military sexual trauma together and those who have experienced combat trauma together, um, that really has has worked to our advantage and worked to their advantage as well towards really focusing and getting a lot out of the program and learning from each other. And that was uh, one of the things that I was going to ask regarding um, if the majority are post 9-11, um, uh, that, that obviously now, um, you know, women in the military and women are exposed to, to they're participating in combat uh, to a greater and greater degree. Um, 
Uh, as I've often said, even here on the show, that uh, the argument against women in combat ended when my driver um, dismounted behind me to make sure I wasn't shot in the back, right? And she was out there just like uh, all the rest of us. Um, but I don't get the sense that this is a you have eight men's groups and four women's groups. You may have female oh. combat veterans who are in the combat trauma group. Do you also have male victims of military sexual trauma in the MST groups? Absolutely. Yeah, we have co- co-ed groups in, in both, right? Because, I mean, going along with, with combat cohorts, right? Male, female, different MOSs. Uh, you know, you know, medical professionals, infantry, you know, war doesn't discriminate against, you know, who they attack and the type of warfare that we're in today. Um, and so everybody can be affected by that. And so we recognize that. And then, um, you know, it, it, it's essentially all inclusive in relation to that. And with the military sexual trauma, um, you know, men, I think uh, or in terms of some of the numbers, I think one in four women experience that and one in a hundred men. Uh, I think from a, one of the articles in, in new publications that, that came out just a little while ago, um, women are more likely to report than men are. Uh, but recognizing that males also experience military sexual trauma and want to incorporate them into the program as well. And, you know, there were some hesitations at first to incorporate men into uh, a predominantly female military sexual trauma cohort, but it really has worked uh, very well. No, I can uh, I, I can definitely get the sense uh, where, where that would be. Um, it, me and my um, uh, clinical work, I, I have um, uh, worked with uh, a number of uh, both male and female uh, victims. I'm, I'm in no way uh, an expert. Uh, I'm definitely not um, you know, trained in, in military sexual trauma um, you know, uh, intervention specifically. Um, but you're right. I mean, it, there, there is that, um, that hesitation on the part of, of male veterans to, to express that, but I can see how that would help to, to be able to understand that, you know, we're all in this together on both sides, both for female, um, combat veterans. I've, I've, to be honest, perhaps this is, or I know this is definitely non-scientific, um, but medics, I think, are among the most traumatized um, uh, veterans that I've worked with, um, you know, in my clinical practice. Um, and, and again, both male and female. And so having a female veteran in that combat trauma cohort, well, well she experienced exactly uh, the same as what the male veteran experienced. And so I can see how that can level out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think there was some hesitation as well on, you know, at, at first, what if, you know, what if a female was within a predominantly male uh, combat cohort? And, you know, part of what, what uh, you know, once we started to incorporate more females into those combat cohorts, it really wasn't an issue what, whatsoever at all. It was more, you know, I think provider bias than it was anything. Um, and with males being incorporated into some of the, the female cohorts, because, you know, in, in many cases, and I don't have any statistics necessarily right off the top of my head to be able to, to back this up, but a, a lot of uh, males are perpetrators. And so that hesitation in terms of trust as well as group cohesion of bringing males into a female cohort, uh, there was a lot of fear about what that would look like. And, you know, part of the way that we have handled that is really having 
a very clear expectation on behavior uh, when we invite people in. And the first thing that we do when they get here is really go over the, the guidelines of what our expectations are for when people are in our program. And one of the major components of that is really no threats of verbal or physical violence, being respectful of, you know, everybody's different views. We have people of different races, different genders, different ethnicities, different religions, um, you know, and, and, and really different backgrounds and experiences. And part of, that's really what part of one makes our country great, as well as what makes our military great. And so continuing to have the same expectation that, that, that is in the military of you know, treating each other how you want to be treated and having some firm guidelines on that really have facilitated uh, that continued cohesion as people come to our program and, and receive very intensive treatment. Now, I, I can uh, I can definitely get the sense of that, and then in in really being connected to the Wounded Warrior Project as um, this goes back to my comment about treating as far forward as possible. Um, you have a let, let's say you know uh, I had a client you know they're connected here to the Wounded Warrior Project here in Colorado Springs. Um, you know they they apply to a, a road home cohort. Um, they're treated with a cohort and a cohort model, and then they return back to a supportive network, um, you know, here in Colorado Springs. Um, but it's, it's, it's supportive both here and there. And then again, back here, which, which I think enhances the recovery rather than just someone alone going away to someplace and then coming back to them alone. Yeah, absolutely. And and we're really along for the entire ride from first point of contact and indefinitely. Um, you know, so it, Wounded Warrior Project has a great continuum of care. And, you know, initially somebody might be struggling, they're identified, maybe they'll go on a, a team building exercise like a Project Odyssey or something like that um, to connect with other veterans that might, you know, one of the major symptoms of PTSD is avoidance. And so, how do we try to get veterans to come together with other veterans while well, we provide different activities uh, that would facilitate that relationship? And that's what Wounded Warrior Project has really made a amazing, done an amazing job and continues to do an amazing job. And from there, then if they need mental health care, then they'll Wounded Warrior Project and, and Rush and our entire Warrior Care Network uh, will help facilitate that, will treat them. And, you know, with a very high standard of care and then continue to follow them when they get home. You know, sometimes people won't need any help. Sometimes, you know, people might struggle a little bit when they do get home and we're going to be there for them to help navigate what that looks like. And Wounded Warrior Project has a lot of resources to be able to help them out. You know, Rush has a lot of, a Road Home Program has a lot of resources to be able to help them out. Um, and, and one of the unique things that we do you know, we'll provide a comprehensive assessment and recommendations. If they do end up coming to our program, then we'll, we'll treat them while there and we monitor their symptoms. And then we continue to track them um, you know, at the you know, one week, two weeks, one month, three months, six months, 12 months out. And then when the Warrior Project is also involved in that process along the way as well. So it's not like we treat you and then, hey, say, see you later. It's let's really... Try to intervene if you are struggling when you do get home or let's hear about it 
if you've really had some successes and how can we continue to, you know, take what worked for you and apply that to other veterans or encourage and empower them to do the same thing that you did. Uh, but if you are struggling, then how do we problem solve and, and link you up with care? Um, so I think that's one of the really big strengths that Wounded Warrior Project uh, is aware of, that, that Road Home Program is aware of. And I do want to make a note about the Warrior Care Network because we got, you know, a lot of other brothers and sister ac- uh, academic medical centers that are throughout the country. So we have, you know, UCLA as Operation Men in, in Los Angeles, California. We have Emory University down in Atlanta, Georgia. They have their veterans program and then Massachusetts General Hospital out in Boston. And together uh, with Road Home and then in Chicago in the Midwest, kind of creating regional centers of excellence that are are specialized in treating this. Um, But together as a network, we're able to support one another, refer veterans to one another. And a further note is that you know, the Warrior Care Network is not here in competition with the VA by any means. We are a, another organization that is trying to help augment their mission. We don't have the infrastructure to treat, you know, the 22 million veterans that are in our country uh, or the 3 million veterans that employed them to, to support Iraq and Afghanistan uh, missions, right? So our job is to essentially try to link up with VAs, have them refer to us, have us refer to them. We're another force multiplier to be able to try to decrease those 20 suicides a day, try to reach out to the veterans that need help uh, that aren't necessarily getting it. It's, it's, it's one team, one fight. I'm a big proponent on it. It takes a, it takes a nation to build a military and to go to war, and it takes a whole nation, not just one organization, to help them transition on. No, I, I absolutely agree, Mike. I, I think that um, it, it is it is definitely more about collaboration and not competition. Um, I often describe, uh, yeah, my my organization. It's a, a small privately owned organization, but we're we're like a civilian vet center, right? You know, but uh, um, we're oh, yeah. affiliated with the Choice Program and. And, and the majority of our clinicians are veterans like myself, are they, the owners are veterans. Um, but, but we're like a, uh, light infantry strike force, right? You know, we can get in and we can be mobile. We can respond quickly. I can get a veteran in for an outpatient therapy appointment very quickly. Same thing for medications. Um, but if you've got something that needs a combined arms team, then I'm going to refer that to because the VA has much more. Uh, significant resources for the larger issues um, rather than just something, you know, the 82nd Airborne Division is going to get a toehold on the on the uh, uh, the airfield, but they're not going to be able to hold it for long. That's why you're going to need, well, third ACR uh, to come in um, and, and, and do that. And so I, I definitely think that there is a place um, for for everyone to cooperate because this problem is much larger than than any one organization. But I, but I also, I do want to point out that I, I appreciate how you identified the, the spectrum of, of even what the, the wounded warrior project um, resources are. Not every veteran is going to need to go to the road home program, right? Just like when you were in yeah. uh, Afghanistan, not every veteran needed to come in and lay on a couch and talk about their mother. If, 
they ever did. Right. You know, but it wasn't, <laughs> but it, it never got, you know, if, if, if the only thing you need is a day out at the ballpark, then, then take that. If the only thing you need is a project odyssey and a little bit more then take that. If you're, you're working through, um, you know, they're, they're out, we're a, an outpatient partner, uh, through Centerstone here in Colorado Springs, solving at the lowest level possible, knowing that, if it continues to escalate, then there are organizations like um, uh, Rush Road Home Program uh, and, and the others that you mentioned. Um, I, I think that's very critical for a lot of veterans to hear because they think that, well, if we're talking about federal mental health, then you mean that I'm going to be in therapy for five years. And that's just not the case. Yeah, you make a great point, right? Not every veteran is going to need mental health care. Not every veteran is going to need individual care. Not everybody is going to need you know, an IOP. And in some sense, I see the Warrior Care Network as the Air Force, Marines, Navy, and the Army, right? Same mission, different capabilities and different strengths, right? And depending upon what the mission is, depending upon what the veteran needs, we can navigate what program might be best. Um, so I, I really think we're just one cohesive and, and really well-oiled machine to really be able to support in, in every way that we can. And I think also, you know, again, highlighting Wooded Warrior Project's spectrum and continuum, continuum of care is, you know, hey, if you are struggling, we'll treat you, and then let's try to help you get back some task and purpose, which sometimes veterans struggle with, as well as some meaning and social connection, because those two things are huge protective factors. And so, they have this whole concept and philosophy of living the logo. And so they have plenty of opportunities to, one, work for more Wounded Warrior Project or uh, Wounded, <laughs> Wounded Warrior Project um, and get involved with that to be able to help them in their continued recovery and then to try to help others as well, one team, one fight. No, that's, uh, that's great. And I, I really think... Um... And again, knowing what I have known about the Road Home Program, um, and again, I think even as I um, mentioned before we got started, where um, I had heard enough good things about the Road Home Program that I referred somebody that I served with in Iraq to uh, the Road Home Program. Um, and, and so I really appreciate you um, giving us a, a, a wider understanding about it. If if somebody wanted to learn more about the Road Home Program, um, how would they get in contact with um, with the program or with you or is there social media? How would they find more, more information? So a couple different ways. So, I mean, recognizing that social media is a big interface of getting information. Uh, we have a, a Facebook page where you can get some information. It's just type in Road Home Program. It's a group that you can join. We have a lot of different activities and information on there about our program. That'll give a link that you can look up. Uh, um, you can just Google Road Home Program. Our website's www.roadhomeprogram.org. Um, we have a, a pretty user-friendly uh, website. Like if I can use it, I think anybody can use it because I'm not very technologically savvy. Uh, but we'll have a little bit about our history, about what services we provide, we have some very user-friendly videos kind of describing what is PTSD, what is mindfulness, what is depression, what is cognitive processing therapy and prolonged exposure, some of the major modalities of treating trauma, what, what does our family services look like with our very own clinicians. So you can kind of see and get a flavor 
of what Road Home Program is all about. You know, we have roughly about one third of our employees are veterans, and and the others, you know, it's not a paycheck for them. It is we really carefully select who work for our organization. Everybody that works for our organization has passion and commitment and dedication to wanting to better impact the lives of veterans um, because they want to give back for the sacrifices that they've made. Um, in addition to that, if you know website or Facebook aren't it, you just want to call in. Our number is 312-942-8387. That's 312-942-8387. And you know, those are a couple different avenues of, of how somebody can, can get in contact with us. No, that's great. And I will definitely make sure that uh, all of that contact information is in the show notes, uh, which can be found at veteranmentalhealth.com. Uh, Mike, I, I really appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, I, I know you're currently on drill and you could be, I don't know, having uh, having a steak dinner right now. But thanks for uh, for joining us to talk about veteran mental health. It's an absolute honor. And thank you so much for having me. And, uh, you know, I hope you know, in some ways that, that I could provide some information to hopefully get a veteran into care, a mission accomplished. So thanks again, Blake. Absolutely. You're listening to Headspace and Timing, where we're trying to change the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health. You've heard a lot about the Wounded Warrior Project over the last several years, and I can tell you that things have definitely changed since the situation back in 2016. One of the most significant changes that have occurred is exactly what you heard here, collaboration with world-class mental health treatment programs like the Rush University Road Home Program. You also heard Mike talk about different mental health programs through the Wounded Warrior Project, such as Project Odyssey, a week-long retreat focusing on health and wellness, and their outpatient therapy programs. One thing that's beneficial about all these programs is that mental health professionals are involved in every step of the way. There is always a clinical mental health professional partner with Project Odyssey, and Wounded Warrior Project participants can get free outpatient therapy for themselves and their families. One key aspect that I don't want to gloss over, however, is that the Road Home Program is a separate program from the Wounded Warrior Project, and as such, doesn't have the limitations in place, such as being a post-9-11 veteran. We're 50 years removed from Vietnam, nearly 30 years removed from the Persian Gulf War, and there are veterans that need help from before, after, and in between those conflicts. As Mike said in the beginning, he is committed to being involved with service member and veteran mental health for the rest of his career, and I feel the same way. The issue is too critical not to be paid attention to, and it's always beneficial when mental health professionals go out of their way to learn about service members, veterans, and their families, and provide them as much psychological support as possible. Thanks for taking the time to check us out. If you want to find the show notes for this episode, go to VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash 092. While you're there, share the link to the show with someone you think may enjoy it. One of the challenges in changing the way that we think and talk about veteran mental health is spreading the word. You can subscribe in a bunch of different podcast players like iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and many others. We recently debuted on Amazon Alexa, and we're always looking for ways to get into your ears. Check everywhere that you can hear us at VeteranMentalHealth.com forward slash platforms. If the player you use to listen to the podcast isn't there, let me know and I'll figure out how to get connected to it. We've just relaunched the show and we're getting back up to where we were in terms of the audience. 
We're starting to pick up reviews on the show, and I'd like to personally thank my buddy Eddie Lazary for his review, as well as a great comment from Air Force veteran and filmmaker Daniel Anderson. It'd be great if you could drop us a review, too. An honest rating and review will help spread the word about what we're doing. Leaving a review on any platform will help increase the visibility of the show. I'd like to thank Doc Todd for giving us permission to use his track Not Alone from his album Combat Medicine. Doc's trying to bring the discussion about veteran mental health out of the darkness and into the light, and you can see all of his work at therealdoctod.com. Make sure to join us next week for another great episode, and until then, remember veterans, you're not alone, ever. The struggle is real, found a feast and lost a soul Eventually my drinking, it got out of control There in darkness I roam, struggling to find home See suddenly death didn't feel so alone 22 a day, destination unknown It could have been avoided if you picked up the phone But now you're gone, so I guess all we get is the tone Nothing but bone weeds, overgrown, pushing up stones I've triumphed over enemies, co-creating enemies Broke out facilities that tried to put an end to me R.I.P., I'd rather grind in tranquility Authentic Tennessee, embrace my ability
Are you looking for more ways to learn about military and veteran culture? Are you a mental health professional or public health professional without lived experience in the military but find yourself working with veterans? Are you a caregiver or a family member of a veteran? Then you might be interested in a series of books that have been released with you in mind. By going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books, you can check out three books that give you an insight into veteran mental health from a combat veteran perspective. These books are a collection of short, consumable essays that discuss a wide range of topics related to mental health and wellness in post-military life. Head on over to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash books and check them out for yourself or follow the link in the show notes.